Welcome back to How I Deal, where we examine a single pass-close deal, how it played out that way, and provide some sales tips from the front lines to use in your deals today. My name is Taylor Dollum, full cycle account executive, turn content guy, and I'm joined by my co-host, Junior Latte, the sales striker here at Pickle. June, how's it going? It's episode 30, and all I've been doing is watching goal after goal because the World Cup, obviously, let's go Ghana. But also today, we are going to do something different. Yes, different indeed. So it's our episode 30, as we've alluded to here. We want to scour each episode we've done, 1 through 29, and we essentially found the best moments and learnings from each step of the sales process, from research to close. And we want to relive some of those highlights and react accordingly. So to kick it off, traditionally, what we do right, is we're talking about a single deal. We're going to jump into a few different deals, talking about each aspect. So we'll start with research, of course. A big piece of kicking off the sales process is doing research, right? There's so many great moments to consider as we are looking to like pull some of these. So we selected a few that we think pack a punch. Let's listen in to Ricky Pearl and Cam England's approach. Here's Ricky comparing prospect research to prison doors, if you remember this one. This was a very high-level strategic approach that we took. We were taking a new security product, entering new markets. That's the role that I had with Pointer, which was opening up APAC. So we identified which kind of professionals needed this product on which kinds of projects and we thought at that stage, everyone who is a professional in the space would want to know that this product with this capability exists and we built lists. So I built a massive list of everyone who would possibly want to talk to in this space um, with the intention of in the long run, also focusing on a project basis, like who needs this now. But at this stage with this deal that we're talking about, it was still super high level, just like list of security professionals in this industry. So it's, it's a high level list of people, but the actual like uh, vertical that you're going into, you know that you can tackle and like you, there's proven, I guess, pain there that you know you can solve. Yeah, absolutely. Like we're talking, it's a pretty generic product as far as security goes. Like, let's just say we're talking about a door, you know, you need a door that can withstand being kicked a hundred times, right? Well, who needs that? Well, anyone who needs a high security door, right? Well, who needs high security doors? There's global standards, you know, prisons, government offices, you know, I don't know, all, all of those kinds of places. All right. Well, this is who needs high security doors. This is who we can sell high security doors to. So it is, is really simpler than you think saying, oh, airports need high security doors. All right. Airports are vertical. You know, and what about police stations? They need a high security tool. All right, police stations, there's a vertical. And, and so we went. But it is really that broad that it the list is at this stage, 10,000 individuals, you know, and I haven't, and, we, and we, we're, still in, we're still in a single country. Ricky Pearl laying it down there. Sometimes, in my opinion, a complex sale, and especially in this case, if you haven't heard the entire episode, please go back and listen. It's an extremely nuanced, complex sale, but it needs to be broken down into a super simple concept. So he talked about two things there. It was this idea of, I need a very broad list because it's a new product that I'm taking to market. You know, I just want as high level and as many people on as the list as possible. And then from there, narrow it down more simply. But then also 
he's explaining a very complex product that he's doing, but in a very simple way of, hey, here's a prison or a high security door. Who needs that? What verticals need that? Here's six prisons, airports, whatever. List those off. And that really puts into context how high level you can make your list when you're kicking things off. And buyers really appreciate, you know, taking marketing buzzwords out of your your sales process and your demos, your discovery. So why not also take it out of uh, of your own research and, and kind of the back end? I mean, Ricky just posts a ton of content on LinkedIn as well. And he outlines how he does this type of research for other accounts. So if you found this interesting, go follow him. He does a ton of great content like that. But also like part of me is like, did he really sell high security doors? Because he got to that so specifically. I was like, I think he's done it. <laughs> yes. All right. Here's Cam England on the importance of sales nav and really how he uses it. One of the things in this prospecting sequence that you found is the event, right? It's like the trigger, I guess, would be a a better way to phrase it. And that is the transition within like the last three months. And then the research that you found from their LinkedIn page is that they've implemented this type of tool in the past. So it's like, okay, I know this person's new. They were probably brought on to do this specific thing. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite people to prospect are those that have their tech stack at like previous companies just in their like uh, job titles or whatever. Yeah, implemented you know, like, XYZ. Exactly. I'm like, oh, beautiful. Like I know, or it's either like, I know that you're probably going to try and implement the previous one you had, or I don't see my competitors on there. And it's an opportunity to be that education, which is great. Going back to sales nav and some of the capabilities there, I don't remember the exact statistic and there's probably different variations, but like people's propensity to buy is highest the first 90 days of a new job. Um, And that's one of the filters that you can apply on LinkedIn is like has been in this role. I think the shortest one you can do is like less than a year, but even that filter, you know, if you're looking for prospects that have a higher propensity to buy, looking at, at individuals that have recently joined a company, which was kind of the case here and, and was obviously a, a fortunate occurrence that I made the right guess that he was you know, standing up a new program and looking to make some waves in his first 90 days. Let's just go ahead and make this the gold standard. If you close a deal with a specific contact, go to SalesNav, set up triggers, to know when that contact moves companies because you can set that up. And then you'll get a notification, hey, Cam at closed has left. I slide into Cam's DMs and I say, you know, when do we need to chat? I will say my all-time favorite subject line is new job who dis is turned. <laughs> I'm gonna to still laugh. <laughs> so we've seen this time and time again, you know, how LinkedIn sales nav filters just providing a ton of value to like the target that you're trying to get after. Here we talked about filters and then we also talked about triggers, right? Triggers being like that event, the thing that's happening. So if you can find a trigger that is also associated to a LinkedIn sales nav filter, that's like the honeypot, right? But in another episode, Nate Nasrallo, right? He talked about how he filtered down LinkedIn sales nav to 10 people which we were like, this is crazy, but it was so targeted, right? So if you don't have it, go check out SalesNav. If you do have it, maybe hit a refresher on how to use it and see if there's new functionality, things you might be missing out on. Yes. And SalesNav obviously is a ubiquitous one that a lot of people, most B2B SaaS sellers are using, but there's even solutions out there that make it a lot easier to get those triggers and those responses 
well into your research that gives you, hey, reach out to this person. I think, you know, we've talked about user gems and even had a few of their other reps on this pod. So they're a big proponent of giving you those triggers ahead of time and allowing you to, to be a lot more efficient and effective in your research. But let's move, you know, prospecting that it's that next step, right? You've done all this research. Now you need to get your foot in the door. And there's so many podcasts out there that are just about prospecting, which is such a small piece of the entire deal cycle and the entire deal story. So just be aware that prospecting podcasts exist. But as we've always stated with How I Deal, we want to show the entire story. But for these particular sections, unfortunately, we're going to air to the side of, of our fellow podcasts and just highlight some of these prospecting sections. But there are two aspects to it, inbound and outbound. Here are two different individuals, Maggie Bloom, on how to approach an inbound when it turns into a, a beginning stages of a deal, as well as Nick Smith, who lays down the law when it comes to outbound prospecting, in particular emails. Here's Maggie Bloom on why you shouldn't sleep on inbounds. You never know where in the funnel they're coming in, right? Whether it's top level where maybe they read a funny blog, and I know Mayo Shake does a ton of good content. Uh, maybe maybe they caught something there and, and they're just checking it out. Or they've reviewed 20 of the, every competitor and somehow they stumbled upon you and they're exhausted, but they're going to give one last look at, a, at, a, at another alternative. And here you are, right? Junior, is that something that you've seen before too? Yeah, it's um, it's just don't, don't sleep. Don't sleep on your inbounds. <laughs> don't take them for granted. And I think Maggie is for sure going to show us a little bit later as we like talked about this deal beforehand. Um, Maggie, talk to us about discovery. Like how did you actually get them to like hold the calendar meeting one? Because that's also don't take that for granted, but like, what was that process like? And were there any things in discovery that you uncovered that you really were like, okay, this will help us win the deal. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So Um, you know, and like you all talked about before is like the inbound process, where are they at? You know, are they using another tool? And is there a huge problem that's coming from that, that that's going to help, you know, basically your discovery and and this whole deal that you're going to figure out too. Um, So for this discovery process, you know, uh, something we always do and is, you know, send like a pre-demo email. Like you said, Junior, you don't really want to sleep on your inbound just because they book a meeting with you doesn't mean that they're going to show up. They actually probably have a pretty high no-show rate sometimes compared to outbound. It's like almost surprising. I think one of the big takeaways in like listening to Maggie Bloom is you have no idea where they are on the buying journey. And just because they came inbound does not mean that they're going to show up, right? Like you, you just never know. You still have to do due diligence and like help that meeting happen, right? Because yeah, it's just they there's so much information about you, about your competitors. So when they do come to you, they may have like the perfect idea of the value props that you provide and know what they want to get out of the meeting. Or they may just be like, I barely Google search you and I'm meeting with you and 10 other people, you know? So it's such an interesting balance, but don't sleep on inbound. It's a great phrase. We should like mint that on the How I Deal podcast, right? Let's shift to an outbound effort. So here's Nick Smith on why emails should be painfully short. Kind of my framework for emails is you want to keep them painfully short and you always start with, it's all about you, like you being the customer, right? It's not about me at all. It's like, 
show me, you know me, right? Sam McKenna talks a lot about this, right? So it was pretty much a summarization of all the stuff I found out about, about them, right? Like, hey, you guys are really well known in this industry. I noticed you have this many deals with AWS. People who have that situation are currently dealing with these types of pains. Is that relevant to you? Like literally it's that short and simple, but it shows like, Okay, the fact that he knows we're in the AWS ecosystem, he knows the amount of deals that we've closed, partnered deals, like that shows a level of research that you're not typically getting in a form email, right? And you're doing it in a concise enough way that you're hitting the target, but also at the same time, you're you're creating something interesting, right? Like yeah. you could do a, a million bits of research, but if you throw it into four paragraphs in an email, I don't give a shit what, <laughs> what you have to say or how well you can solve the problem. I'm not... I'm, putting that in the trash, but the fact, like you said, painfully short um, and just almost demanding attention with, with the uh, specific language you're using is just a beautiful combination. Yeah. Show me, you know me. This is uh, something that Nick Smith talked about. It comes from Samantha McKenna, who you should also follow on LinkedIn. Maybe I should say that after every everything we talk about, go follow them on LinkedIn. That's where we spend most of our time. But show me one of the best sentences to recap all of that. Just keep emails painfully short. I do want to say, however, when you actually get into a deal painfully short, may not be the best when you're trying to paint a picture of the pain and providing context after you've done discovery and you know what's going on with the account. But before we jump too far ahead to that, we can actually talk about discovery itself. So we've said it in the past, but discovery, a lot of times it is where a deal is closed or closed, closed one or closed lost. It's a make or break situation. If you can find real pain here, your chance to shoot up incredibly high when it comes to the win rate. It's easier said than done for sure. But here are a couple legends that, that really hone in on exactly how to approach a discovery conversation and where to find those gold moments in each. So in particular, PJ Rickardson and Patrick Kennedy both provide very unique looks and aspects of how they approach a discovery meeting. Here is how PJ asks certain questions to gauge the deal's trajectory. You've got a few questions that you mm -hmm. ask and based on how they respond, you already know like if they're up to speed on buying tech, if they're up to speed on the needs of the team or the company or in tune with like potential impacts that you can have. Um, you didn't mention that here. So I'm like, I'm not really calling you out, but we wrote it down because I was like, dang, there really are some questions that can expose more than just like the information they share, but like what they know about what they're doing. Yeah. And I can touch on that for sure. Uh, thanks for bringing that back up, Junior. Essentially, we want to, we want to know things that help us, that help us sell our product, right? But almost more importantly is just, as you said, the way that they answer those questions can tell you a lot about whether the deal is going to close, uh, what you should do next, how you should run that deal. And a lot of the times it can be as simple as, do they know how to answer that question? Is it something that they're even thinking about? It, because if not, then that completely changes the trajectory of this deal. I'm now more about educating them on what best practices might be. 
I'm trying to not only utilize Adobe's brand as this uber large marketing marketing company that has a lot of customers that do things great, um, but showing utilizing that to build credibility and saying, these are some best practices that we've seen. These are some things that marketers who buy our products care about. Is that something you think you should care about? Um, right? That's the approach that I may take if they don't know how to answer my questions. Now, if they do, this could uh, completely change it in the opposite direction, right? We may get way more in the nitty gritty of how our products can uh, solve very specific issues that they're seeing across business orgs, across different use cases, um, across different pain points. And so it's really all about, should I build an educational foundation or are they already educated on what we do? And I just need to show them how we do it better. Yes, this is perfect, right? Okay, so quick workshop for all the listeners. Go back to your most recent discovery. Look at all the questions that you were asking through those and see if any of those questions lead to any you know, obvious buying type responses. And if you feel like you're not getting enough, loop in your VP of sales. Hey, VP of sales, I heard about this thing where Based on how someone responds to a question, it can tell me a lot about the, you know, the deal. Go workshop that. I'm sure there will be some insights. This is something I hadn't put too much thought to aside from buying intent questions, right? Like buying intent questions, be like, how much does it cost? What does it look like to implement? What is onboarding, right? All that kind of stuff. But what PJ is talking about here is he's asking questions to uncover their level of knowledge and essentially uncover the level of perceived value that they will have from what I'm presenting to them, which is really incredible. And it's not something they're just giving you a lot of times if they hold cards. So it's like getting more with, with less, honestly. On Patrick's episode, we loved when he was talking about the mobilizer versus champion distinction, some mistakes that I've likely made throughout my career, but let's give that a listen as well. I'd be remiss not to say that mobilizer is such a cool term. I have, <laughs> I have not personally used that in a lot of my deals, but maybe my ignorance and maybe some pod listeners as well. What is a mobilizer? Maybe is it similar to a champion? Is there differences that in your mind and how do we, how do we just use that term more often? Yeah. So mobilizer, I view as somebody who has been tasked with solving a problem. Champion is somebody who's on your side. They're, hey, this is the solution that I want, right? And whether you've value sold them into be, becoming the champion, maybe they started out as a mobilizer. But so I view a mobilizer as, hey, this person has been tasked with helping the organization come to a solution for this problem that they have. I want to turn every mobilizer into a champion. That doesn't always happen, but somewhere during the process, you need to try to find a champion who can filter you information, secret information from that organization. How's it going? How am I doing? You know, where am I missing? So Junior talked about the scale of one to 10. Is somebody on a scale lower than a five or how do I get them from a six to an eight? What is driving the conversation? back there. So using your champion to kind of glean the secret information that you may not have as an insider on the other side. First off, as I alluded to in that clip and as Junior alluded to in the intro here, like mobilizer, sweet ass term, (laughs) perfect term. You know, I think as far as when the deal trajectory 
is being played out, right? Like where you need to understand where you're at it, how likely is this to close the key, the absolute key. If you get to discovery or at least to a couple in first meetings in, you have to be able to recognize who is this person? What is their role in the deal? If they're, as Patrick talked about, if they're a mobilizer, it's really just simply they're getting the wheels going, making sure the right people are introduced, but they're not going to advocate for you internally. Whereas we always hear the term champion, we always throw it around willy-nilly, but there is that distinction that I found was fascinating between a true champion and just somebody that's going to intro you and that's it. And I, as far as champions go, that's the holy grail. That's where you want to get to in every deal because I don't know the exact statistics, but I imagine probably 90% of deals close because an actual champion was, was a relationship was built there. So demos are a super hot topic, right? We talk about discoveries being the make or break portion of the sales process and discoveries are super fluid. They happen throughout the deal, but <laughs> demos are where the rubber meets the road. It's where ultimately you show all these this pain you've dug up, all this value you've built. At some point, you got to press share my screen and show what you actually can provide as a solution. Discovery is about them. Demos tend to be about you, right? It's an awkward kind of transition there. If you're as a novice seller, you're not approaching it the right way. But there's a couple of really good reps that stand out from the crowd, one of which being Nolan Hansen, who uh, who had some awesome takes on the difference between, or the, at least the magic of being able to go on site and continue to build a relationship when it comes to demoing and how big of a game changer that is. So let's listen on on that. Talk about the magic of what happens when you go on site. Going on site is, it's one of my favorite parts of, of this role. And, and I'm glad that we have the flexibility to go on site with customers as well as prospects, but meeting them in person really creates that relationship. It really creates that partnership. I remember walking into their headquarters and our main champion, she runs up to us and hugs myself and my, and my sales engineer. You know, we'd had obviously many <laughs> sessions with them, but even then from right from that moment forward, it's like, okay, this is going to be a good time, right? This is going to, things are going to go well. They're excited for us to be here. And, you know, they had a room set aside for us. They were really excited for us to come in and, and really be those business advisors as we're, you know, presenting offerings to them uh, can help with some other challenges, their pains that they're experiencing. Um, in this particular example, this was, I think, the only customer that I've added on Facebook. You know, sometimes they'll add us on there, and I'm usually I'm like, oh, I don't know, I'll keep you know personal life and business separate. But you know, we added them because they were so great to work with, and and they really viewed us as partners. Now I realize not every deal can be done that way. But if you are working a deal that is local or even a drivable distance, it can be extremely worth it. In Nolan's case, that's a long deal that he had been working. So by the time they actually met, they had exchanged a lot of Zoom time, a lot of calls, right? Lots of transactions back and forth. But just keep in mind, like the more that you can do to make the demo experience more personable, right? Maybe that's like sending a lunch before the demo. If you do around lunchtime, I don't know, just try to think of something to do differently than your competitors to help you stand out. But ultimately, you know, the demo, you move on. There's some barriers that come up. This is where we learn the most in sales. 
typically we've learned that barriers are not just like objections, right? Like an objection you would get on a cold call, but it's more of a scenario that you have to navigate. It tends to be the most strategic part of the sales process and quite possibly where the top reps, the top people getting help are able to transition some of these deals into winning. We found a great clip from Nick Smith, where he's talking about some of the toughest barriers that you will face in a sales process, which is no decision, right? They're not going with you. They're not going with a competitor. They're choosing to do nothing. Nick, this sounds like something that they had just been living with. Like this is just a pain they live with. Yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty common in our, uh, we don't really have a lot of, at least at the time, we didn't have a lot of direct competitors. Pretty much the other options for people were to build their own integration, which is pretty time consuming, or people were just throwing, uh, throwing bodies at the problem, right? One thing that's really interesting is the trigger pain that you found in your initial research is literally just pain that they live with every day. It's not this huge initiative to like, oh, we have this massive, we recognize this massive problem and need to fix it. It's just like, hey, that's kind of painful. Nick's email is interesting. And they tied the two together. And then what your job as the seller to do is to help them recognize that living with this pain is actually costing them a lot more than they recognize. Yep. And being able to do that, I think is the difference between getting you know, this discovery to go from demo to close one and demo to close loss. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times your prospects are living with this type of pain, but they're living with it. You know, they, they don't recognize that, oh my gosh, it's costing me so much and it's more than just pain. So, I mean, kudos to you. You did a really great job like leading them through, like you mentioned, the Sandler pain funnel to recognize this is not livable pain. Like what you're living in is actually misery. Let's fix it. Yeah. I, I Just to build off of that really quick, in a lot of different sales jobs I've had, our biggest competition was do nothing, right? Oh. Like, live with the pain. Because to your point, you know, it's like a lot of times people have that pain, it's kind of latent. And yep. the easiest thing to do is just to kind of continue going through the motions and not address it. <laughs> we've, we've talked about this before, but like banish indecision, you know, like banish it, like don't let them choose nothing. We see it time and time again, as we alluded to in that clip, like prospects more like more often than not are going to just opt to not do anything rather than change, right? Even if you do the best sales cycle possible, showed a ton of value, maybe even dig up a lot of a very kind of literal pain, maybe, that, maybe it is literal, they don't feel great about it. They still choose not to change. And I even think about myself, I think I've had the, uh, on my car, like the something about my spark plugs being needed to change. And I don't know, I'll just risk it. <laughs> That's how my car breaks down. I'm just not going to change. And I, I look at myself like, why am I doing this? What, what the hell am I thinking? Every time I go on the road, I'm just risking it. But at the same time, I don't know, it sucks to have to drive and get those things changed or wherever I need to do the research to, to figure that stuff out. It's probably really easy. Somebody DM me how to do that. But Taylor, 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 I literally have a window that will not roll down right now. And I just live with it because it's not that painful. But every once in a while, I go through a drive-through and I remember that my window doesn't roll down. And I feel like the biggest idiot opening my door to order. And then when I get to the window and I open my door and they're like, 
why are you opening your door to hand me your credit card? It gets like painful enough that I actually ended up fixing it. But that was like pain I lived with for three years. For a long time. And if there was such thing as like a car window salesman, that would have been a prime opportunity to go through. And how do you combat? Why the hell are you living with this? And eliminating that option super early on is going to be your best bet. So addressing those things straight ahead at clearing up any potential indecisions or things that they just live with, try to shine a light on that stuff and get to it early. It could be the difference between winning and losing. So everyone tends to add their own flair to how they manage an actual sales process. And more specifically, what does that mean? Where do you keep your notes? How do you communicate with your prospect, with your internal team? How do you just simply keep your head on straight when it comes to these three to 12 month deal cycles with 15 different buyers that you just have to keep in check as well as your own team. We've asked quite a few account executives on each one of these episodes, what is their exact process? And unfortunately, maybe fortunately, like it changes every time. Nobody really has the same exact uh, deal flow or deal management or how they approach it. But these two in particular kind of shine as really interesting aspects. And Amelia Taylor in particular, she talks about bringing the buying team together through Slack, right? Bringing her champions, her buyers, as well as her internal team all together on one Slack channel. So let's hear how she does that. You mentioned this was an unorthodox sale. So like, where did the where did the deal management come from? How did you keep everybody kind of in the same place and, and keep everything organized? So I, I created a, a Slack group messaging thing for all of us. It made the most sense because that's where we met to begin with. So let's keep communication where we originally were at. So yeah, you're right. It was, I want to say five calls we had, but there was a lot of, lot, a lot, a lot of Slack going on. I mean, 1130 at night, we're slacking back and forth going over agreed terms, which is funny, but at the same sense, he had budget cuts. He had things that were going on. He's like, Hey, can we do this? We do that. I'm jumping on that. I'm not waiting until tomorrow. If he's ready to start talking right then. Yeah, I'm doing that. If you're at this point, you know, where you're talking terms, I'm reaching out to my CEO, texting him saying, can we do this? Yes, if they sign by this time. Boom, perfect. We haven't talked deal management before, I don't think. Have we, Taylor, talked specifically about deal management? Uh, No, not specifically. I mean, there's entire platforms out there just built for like this purpose of getting you and your buyer in the same room, right? Like sharing resources and all this. If you're listening today and you haven't thought about it, start thinking about deal management. Think about if this is applicable to your sales cycle or if it's applicable to specific deals. It might not be your average deal, but if you're working something that you feel like, hey, it could use something like this, Slack. She's got all of her champions. She's got all of her coaches and experts on her side in one room. I mean, we just see how powerful that can be. I do want to mention in the beginning, she talked about they met on Slack. So they continued the relationship there. So you may need to meet your prospects, however, the relationship originally started and then work them into a texting relationship or maybe a Slack connect like Amelia was able to. But if I worked every deal on Slack connect with their buyers and my co-founders, I know my rent weight would increase significantly, right? I also think it's just a great way to have some job security. If you always include your managers and leadership into your deals, especially at this level of communication and integratedness, when or if you lose 
it's not a direct reflection of yourself, but the team at large because of how many people were involved. Just a thought. Keep in mind another additional reason, I suppose, to do something like this. Nate Nasralla believes in keeping all of the internal team in lockstep during a deal, right? So much so that they are willing to give something up, maybe something like a discount or spend more time, jump onto a Zoom that they wouldn't traditionally join, right? In order to secure like this strategic advantage. So let's listen to Nate Nasrallah talk about how he uses his internal team. As the account executive, you need to be in lockstep with your leadership on the strategic value of a particular account so much so that they see that there's equal value in giving up something because it's going to help. And in this case, it was like, look, we already know that this type of account, it expands and it grows over the long term. This would be a very attractive logo, by the way, to have on the website and show others. In insurance, it's like, look, you might be falling behind if you're not working with us because they are. And that's the type of talk track that I would be using internally to my leadership if I was in the AE role very early on inside of that deal, just to get yourself in a position where you're making an ask that has already been cultivated as opposed to coming in at the last minute. And this is where most times it goes wrong. It's at the very end of the deal. You're trying to get it to close. You come up against these things and then the seed hasn't been planted. And so you're making that ask for the very first time. So I would say, help yourself get ahead of it from early in the deal. And look, maybe you don't use that chip and you don't need it in order to get the deal across the line. There is no barrier, all the better. That You know, that's great. So there comes a time in every account executive's life where you'll be working a deal and you want to get that deal across the line, like Nate was talking about, but you did not plant that seed ahead of time of getting all of your kind of internal team, your not necessarily internal champions, but the people that are on your side, whether it's your manager, sales engineer, anybody like that on the same page of, hey, this is what it's going to take to probably close this deal when it comes down to it. Are we willing to make this sacrifice to do that and maybe meet a little more halfway than we would like? Now, as far as literal keeping accounts organized and where to manage them, this isn't necessarily about that, but this is about being organized in that deal process, so much so that you are seeing 10 moves in advance and setting up kind of your team to allow you to succeed. Because we all know when you try to bring a discount to your manager super late in the deal and all of a sudden you get a hard no, you, you tend to blame them, but ultimately it's kind of your fault for not understanding that ahead of time of what's going to be needed. And you end up asking way too late. And then of course you get the hard no and you lose the deal and you lose some quota there and nobody's happy at that point. Well recapped, well recapped. I love the phrase lockstep, like Google that. That's one of those terms that just like really stuck with me through that. We promised to do something a little bit different today. Hopefully you saw that we tried to deliver some of those not necessarily the best moments because there's so many, but some impactful moments that we've had through 29 episodes, right? Research, prospecting, discovery, demo barriers, and deal management. Each of them proved to be crucial stages of the sales process. Lots of insights on how to handle something you're likely facing today. So give it another listen. Go listen to how ideal it can be.
<laughs> nice. Nice. I love a good cringy pun, but yes, <laughs> wanted to do something different. Wanted to change it up a little bit for episode 30. We're super honored that you all have been uh, along for the ride and listening to us throughout these 29 episodes. And we're looking to do a hell of a lot more. And just like that, our first highlight clip show of How Ideal is in the books. Thanks again for everyone for tuning in. Thanks to all our sales reps, account executives that came on and we highlighted throughout the show, as well as every other one that has joined us. If you are interested in being one of our guests or always looking for real account executives, real sellers that are on the front lines, I don't want to go through an entire deal. Just go listen to any of our past episodes and you'll see it's worth reliving a tale and being able to put your way of thinking your in your approach to a deal out there because it's always fascinating for other sellers as well as a little cathartic for yourself to talk through this stuff. But until that point, we will see you next time.